in three, two, one. Seismic shifts are redefining business, communities, and individual life. Your ability to navigate and leverage them while flawlessly executing today will be the difference between continued excellence, irrelevance, or even extinction. Now is the time to pursue your new next. On this episode, Randy Pennington shares the specific mindset and strategies leaders need to prepare their organizations to flourish in the face of upheaval and uncertainty. Most importantly, he provides a roadmap for developing and sustaining the culture you need to set yourself apart and compete in our new reality. Join me now for my conversation with Randy Pennington. Well, hi, Randy, and welcome to the podcast. We're so delighted to have you, and thanks for spending some time with us to talk about how we can flourish as individuals and organizations in the face of uncertainty, change, and disruption. So happy to have you here. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always good to catch up and visit. Uh, absolutely, not a problem. Hey, before we get into it, we need to cover a little background for our listeners. Now, I know you went to school at Texas A&M. What was the path after you know business school? What was the path that you took to get started in this direction or on the topic? I'm, I'm assuming you didn't leave university and start getting right into it. Where'd you go from there? No, I, you know, actually, and by the way, I have to clarify in case there are any true Aggies. I went to one of the campuses, one of the, one of the sure. university system campuses, but I'm not an Aggie. Uh, I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not allowed to wear the ring because only the flagship campus. Actually, though, Michael, my undergraduate degree and my master's degree, my postgraduate work was in organization administration and management, but my bachelor's and master's degree are in psychology and sociology. And right after I finished my undergraduate degree, I spent two years while I was in grad school, phrase I like to use, I played volleyball with schizophrenics for a living. I was a rec therapist at a psychiatric hospital, (laughs) which in many ways sort of uniquely qualifies me to do what I do today, maybe more than anything else. But then I went from there into a, a transition into human resources. I became one of the senior leaders of a startup facility. We we opened the very first state-supported facility fully accredited for children and adolescents in the state of Texas. Uh, and I was one of three senior leaders in that group. And then and I had eight departments reporting directly and everybody sort of indirectly at that point. And then I was recruited into a consulting firm where our focus was on performance management, right. change, and essence. It's interesting. We created a program. You've been around a long time, uh, like I have. You probably remember something called positive discipline in sure. the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was a partner in the firm that created that. Nice. We were also the people that brought peer dispute resolution to the marketplace. We worked with Mark Edwards out of uh, Arizona State. We were the first people to commercially market and bring 360 feedback to the marketplace. I was a partner in that little boutique consulting firm. And interestingly enough, one of my clients told me, he said, we just finished a large uh, positive discipline implementation. and." He said, we thought we bought a new performance management system. <laughs> right. What you really sold us was a culture change. And I said, yeah, but you wouldn't have bought a culture change if we bought if we'd sold it. Just package it differently and then solve the same problem. 
Right. And, and so, so I became sort of an organizational nerd interested in culture and change and transformation and how businesses get better. I became interested in that very early on at the hospital. We didn't call it culture, but right. we decided from the outset that we wanted a different type of workplace. And we wanted a place, I mean, first year, first two years, our turnover rate was half of all of our benchmark facilities. We were doing things that nobody else was doing at the time. Now everyone's doing that stuff. But back then we were sort of ahead of the curve on it. And like most of us that get into this business, sure. I don't know who you wanted to be when you started. Right. I was going to be I a doctor. To, yeah. I was going to be a doctor, go to med school. And yeah, but I when mean, you started doing this, there was probably one person that you read or that you talked to and you thought, I want to do that. Yeah, right? exactly. Tom Hopkins, a sales trainer out of Scottsdale, was speaking in a seminar. I didn't have any money. I couldn't afford it. This is 1978, 79. So I actually snuck into his seminar. I had to put a suit on and I snuck in. Everybody else was wearing suits. So it was focused on real estate, but I went in and listened to his strategies and, and man, it just talked to me, but I, I watched how he worked with the audience and I thought, man, I'd love to do that. And maybe not the way he does it. He's so masterful at what he does and, and give him back for years. And I, and I know you're aware of him, but I thought, I want to get into that. I want to do that. And that's what that set that forward. And so, and my business is, I started applying what he taught and that kind of took me out of med school and rather focus on my business and, and chasing the business part of it. So that's how I did it. How about you? Right. So the first thing, I mean, I was interested in this topic already. I played with it in grad school. I wrote my master's thesis on organizational burnout. We created an instrument to predict burnout. Wow. In the hospital where I was. Yep. But then I read Tom Peters in search of excellence. Great book. And then I saw Tom Peters present. He's amazing. And I thought, yeah. well, I can do that. Yeah. Right? He's amazing. Right. So, I mean, it's, I always find it interesting because we tend to go, if you look at your career, I mean, I know that you work a lot with sales teams and sales organizations and right. that would track very closely to what Tom Hopkins did. If you look yeah. at the things that I do, I, I mean, I'm sort of an organizational culture and strategy nerd, just like Tom Peters, oh, excellent. We, we, we get those things that speak to us. Well, in that vein, our focus of this episode is really talking about specific mindset that is necessary and strategies that leaders need to prepare their teams to flourish in the face of upheaval and uncertainty. And most importantly, we want to create a roadmap for our listeners to develop and sustain their own cultures and themselves and how to set themselves apart mm -hmm. and become preferred in their markets. Now, we have definitely been living in a couple of years with extreme uncertainty. We've obviously, with pandemic, we've got stuff going on over in Europe right now with wars and ends of wars, all kinds of things going on, lots of uh, upheaval for sure. And so we're all hoping to get back to some normalcy. Now, you suggest in your work that that won't happen, and it's a fool's errand to think that we will. What do you say that? Well, it, it happened quite by accident. I mean, I back in April of 2020, in the early days of the pandemic, I I was talking with someone on a podcast like this, and, mm -hmm. and they said, when will we get back to normal? You know, you're the change and transformation guy. And I said, there's no more new normal. There's only a new next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so great line. That that and it sort of blew up and I thought maybe there's something there. Yeah. Um, but I go back to right after 9-11, Michael. And about six weeks after 9-11, you remember those days, I all do. the conferences were canceled and everything else happened here in mm -hmm. the U.S. And, and I happened to be at, at a conference that wasn't canceled. 
about six weeks after. And Lady Margaret Thatcher was the closing keynote speaker. Goodness. So I decided to stick around because all my other conferences and work had been canceled after 9-11. Right. And Lady Thatcher came on the platform and she said, you here in the United States have been told now for several weeks that the world has changed forever. She said, my perspective is different. The world has stayed the same. It's just that our illusions have been stripped away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more and visible. I thought we've experienced pandemics before, we've experienced yeah. wars before. If you go back in history, all the things have happened similarly, not the same, but similarly to the way it happened now. I mean, you go back to 2008, 2009, the real estate bubble here in the U.S. Right. bears an eerie resemblance to the Dutch tulip bubble of, I thought, 1637. That's right, over in Amsterdam. Right. So, yeah. so we've done this before. And we as humans have this tendency to believe that the first time we've experienced something is the first time anyone has experienced it. Yeah, it's interesting in how that impacts our impressions of things and and our assumptions. I remember my first recession, and then I started tracking them through the National Bureau of Economic Recovery because they predict them, and we've had a bunch of them. And I actually like them. I'm kind of glad we get recession. And some people say to me, well, what are you talking about? Because it creates opportunity. When things are going well, when everything is going good, there's nothing to fix. It ain't broke. Let's not fix this thing. But unless the pain is so great, they have to change. All right, or the pleasure is so good they want to, people don't, organizations don't. So for me, when there's a, a disruption like that or a major disruption, they panic and that creates opportunity. So uh, I, I don't know about you, but I've actually had some of my best years ever in my career during recessions. Yeah, 07, 08 was my best. Now, for over two decades, you've been helping organizations initiate and manage change. What are some of the reasons, and I know in some of your writings and programs, you've got four or five reasons why individuals and organizations have difficulty adapting to change and what they can do to overcome them. What what are some of those reasons that they should be focused on? Well, I mean, so if you think about change, we tend to think of change as sort of this binary process, either you change or you don't. Right. We all change not because of intellectual understanding, but because of emotional readiness. Mm, interesting. Emotional readiness. What do you mean? Yeah. So, for example, some years ago, I was chairman of the board for the American Heart Association for the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. And during that year, I traveled pretty much all over the state talking to, I uh, used to live in Texas. It's a big place. Right. And it took me a long so, time to country. get around yeah. everyone. <laughs> but I, whenever I spoke to groups, some as small as five or six, some as large as five or 600, I always asked three, these three questions. How many of you should eat healthier than you eat today? Every hand would go up. Right. How many of you should exercise more than you exercise today? Every hand would go up. And if you smoke, how many of you shouldn't smoke? Right, Every hand. Right. And it's at that point in time, it sort of dawned on me. It's not about intellectual understanding of the need to change. Right. It's about something that creates the emotional readiness that you're willing to move forward and you're willing to take action. They want to move to that change. It's either crisis or opportunity, right? right? right. Crisis pushes us to change. Interesting. Opportunity mm-hmm. pulls us to change. Right. And we know in individuals and organizations, it's usually crisis. To your point, things are going well. Why would I mess this up? Right. Interestingly enough, though, the best organizations 
maybe it goes back to my psychology training, the term I use, the, the best organizations and leaders exist in a perpetual state of positive paranoia. Mm. Mm-hmm. Positive paranoia. Interesting. Herb Kelleher, the famous founder of Southwest Airlines, right. once said, I have famously predicted 11 of the last three recessions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about the readiness, right? And I really like that being emotionally prepared for it because once you are, then it's always a transformation. People are often change adverse. So as, and, and you recognize that, and as a business leader, what kind of behaviors should we be looking for that our team members might be exhibiting to blockchain? It comes out as resistance. That's resistance. Right. And that's what it, we talk about. What should we be in looking fact, for? What are the symptoms that we should be looking and paying attention to within our organization? Well, obviously, it, it's career limiting to go to your boss and say, this is a terrible change. I'm not going to do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so what you see is a little subtle sabotage. Yeah. Cool. And it's not that it comes across as blaming or it's other people's fault. It's those symptoms that are lack of ownership. Um, they'll, they'll do just what you ask them to do. By the way, I have a firm belief that in organizations, the middle of the organization is where change goes. You talk about this in your writings. You say that people support what they help create, and then no one ever argues with their own ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we tend to look at the top of organizations. We mm -hmm. think this is a wonderful idea. Truthfully, people at the front lines, right. they just want to know where we're headed and that you're consistent in getting there. But people in the middle of the organization have grown up and arrived where they are, knowing how to succeed in an environment and in a world that you're seeking to change. Right. Interesting. So how do we determine what or how to change what we should do and maybe what we shouldn't do? I was uh, listening to some of your work uh, last week and you gave a great Steve Jobs example or quote about changing. What, how, how'd the quote go? Do you remember? Well, but Jobs said of all the things that we did at Apple, one of the things that I'm most right. proud of were the yeah, things that it. we chose not to do. Yeah. And, and so we look at change as either adapt or die. I mean, adapt is the easy level of change. Adapt is who moved my cheese. My iceberg is melting. Adapt is what my wife told me when she said, Randy, I'll never ask you to change when I got married. But then she went on to say, I do expect <laughs> that you'll continually yeah, adapt. I think I had yeah. that too. Yeah. Adaptation, it's, it's, it's that or survival. So, right. And so adapting is easy, but there's right. a couple levels below that. There's anticipate. Right. So it's be ready for things that might come up to us that might happen. And then there's pursue. What are those things that we ought to be pursuing to your point of what makes us preferred? There are changes that we know that we should pursue to make us preferred. Right. By the way, the fourth level of change is really level zero and that there are changes that we should ignore. And the ones that we should ignore are ones that don't move us toward our vision, don't create more values for more value for our customers. Sure. Don't make sense. You, you know, exploit a strength or overcome a weakness. Right. And don't help us live our values more effectively. If it doesn't do those things, then that's change we ought to probably should ignore. Unless it's a regulatory change that we don't have a choice about. Right. It's forced upon you. It's very interesting to see how some companies are, they, 
they embrace change. They look forward to those opportunities and there's companies that fall by the wayside. I was reading one statistic just the other day that since preparing for this interview and conversation since 2000, 52% of companies in the Fortune 500 have either gone bankrupt, been acquired, or ceased to exist. That's 52% in the Fortune 500 have disappeared. Where do they go? Are they been, you know, downsized, right-sized, or capsized? And back in the 1958, when this was first, you know, created, the average time you remained in that index was about 61 years. Today, that's just not the case. So, so it's we're closer to 10 or 11 now. I think. Yeah, where are companies getting it wrong? Well, you talk about it a lot, and that's relevance. Yeah, They cease to be relevant to their customers. And we had this conversation before. Uh, taxi companies should have done Uber. Yeah. Why didn't Could they have, invite Uber? Exactly. Right? Sears should have been Amazon. I mean, Sears, if you go back to when Sears had the greatest, I mean, the Sears catalog was Amazon before there was Amazon. That's right. That's right. And so Sears should have been Amazon. Probably could have been Walmart, but it should have been Amazon. And so you start thinking about where you are. And Jack Welch said this back in the GE president, 80s, the GE former C CEO. GE CEO. Yeah. And he said, the difference between winning and losing is how the men and women of our company do change as it comes at them. Interesting. And he said that back in the 80s. And everybody went, yeah, 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 right, right, right. And then, as you remember, in our world, change sort of blew up in the 90s as yeah. a topic, and it stayed consistent ever since. And I'm not sure that the pace of change has accelerated, but the pace of transformation and new ideas and new challenges in the marketplace have continued to escalate. And that's what, one of the reasons why change is so difficult. It's moving. It feels as if it's moving much quicker. Although I was just with a group of MBA students last week and they have a world, they have a word for the level of change that we're seeing right now. What are they calling it? Normal. <laughs> well, it's interesting how when you're a leader of an organization or maybe you have your own small business or you're an entrepreneur, it's being able to be nimble, and you talk about that. As a matter of fact, in your book, Make Change Work, Staying Nimble, Relevant, and Engaged in a World of Constant Change, you talk about that and how leaders are dealing with all the change and disruption that can create urgency, and then how do you create that buy-in for that change, right? And so companies like new technologies coming to the marketplace, can technology hurt my business? So taxis, who should have invented Uber, they should have. There's other, uh, Blockbuster, in the video, I was in the video industry for years in the 80s, started back when it first started, and I sold out to a company that sold out to Blockbuster, and then all of a sudden Netflix comes along, and we were ordering CD, and I remember going, ooh, this isn't gonna be good for Blockbuster, and yet they were being acquired, and they still had this growth model going, and they failed to innovate, and it was innovate or die, and so the disruption when Netflix went online, who should have invented Netflix? Blockbuster was, that was an easy one to determine, right? And interestingly enough, Blockbuster turned down the opportunity to purchase Netflix for something like $55 million. Oh man, yeah. The, the guy who was the former CEO of Blockbuster, someone I worked with in a previous life and he was at a previous company. And I actually talked to a few of the people at Blockbuster. And there's a couple of things that I think are important about Blockbuster that are important for companies today. First off, 
they had a division working on online strategies. They had to move them out of their office because there was so much resistance from the existing people to what they were trying to do. And, and one of the guys that worked there told me that he said, we all knew that it was coming. We just thought we had more time. So they knew it was coming. They just, it accelerated. Well, prior to COVID and the pandemic, I was telling my clients, I got, here's the trends I see. They'd ask my opinion 10 years from now. Here are all the things I see happening. And I'm not saying I was right on it. I, I said, here's what I see coming down. And that's all been accelerated. It's here. And to your point, it's all been compressed and I see the acceleration. So creating a mindset for change and embracing the change. And in our role in our organizations, I'm always looking at new technologies, artificial intelligence. We have governments mm -hmm. that are purposely slowing down the implementation of AI into programs because it's going to get rid of so many jobs. Back, you know, in the old days, a new technology came into the marketplace, two new jobs got created. Today, when a new technology comes in, it's something like two new jobs or two jobs get destroyed or taken away. And so those are some of the outside threats that are going to be disruptors in the future. And I think, as you say, developing that mental fortitude and mindset to expect that as the new normal. And why is it that we, we have that problem with change? It goes in our personal lives too, that disruption, things that we, we like to get our routines. And I'm a creature of routine. I have my daily rituals. We all are. Yeah. When I've read some of the work on how the human brain works, we're sort of hardwired, at least most of us are, hardwired to value routine and habit and stability. It is part of how our brain operates. We seek order out of things. Yeah. I also think there's always a systemic piece, too. Right. You know, if you think about what leaders receive recognition for accomplishing. Right. There. Any time that you're innovating, any time that you're making a change, there's always the potential for a dip in performance Right. as we're learning something new, as we're acquiring sure. a new habit, as we're moving to a new technology, whatever that might be. And we don't reward people for that. The stock market, publicly traded companies, doesn't reward you for having a bad quarter. No, everything's for next quarter and that's it. And, can, and yeah. so we've set the system up. Mm. to make it more difficult for people to innovate. That's why when you look at the companies that are perpetual innovators, yeah. Hewlett Packard accomplished it until people that founded HP started to die off. Right. And then it became just like any other company. Elon Musk is doing it, but it's, it's his company. He can do it. Yeah. Amazon is doing it, but basically it's still Bezos' company. It's publicly traded, but right. we all know that we're just all riding on the coattails of whatever Bezos does next. And so it's hard to keep that at the forefront of your organization if the leadership doesn't value it. And in that case, if the ownership doesn't value it as well. Right. Well, they'll learn the hard way as the history books show us. Or like I remember when the iPhone came out, it displaced BlackBerry. And what, BlackBerry was the darling. I loved BlackBerry. One year after the iPhone got launched, boom, it was done. BlackBerry was done and lost its dominant position. And we see it again and again. You see it in the bed and breakfast, Airbnb. We see the disruptors coming on. And even in the pandemic and even in 08 and 09, businesses came into being that weren't here before. And new billionaires are going to be created. And there's new solutions to create. So it's finding that problem. 
This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C, and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. And as a bonus, we will give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. Now for the rest of my conversation with Randy Pennington. Now, you talk about, and you, you briefly mentioned emotional readiness and that businesses can prepare their people for and maybe help to counteract fear. And you've talked about that. So we prepare them, which could be done to change or understanding change. Is that, you recommend that through training, through speaking? You know, How I, do we I get awareness around that? There's a couple of things. Training helps. First off, so it goes back to who do you select? Right. I'm a native Texan. I grew up in a small town in Northeast Texas. And one of the sayings I heard growing up is it's much easier to ride a horse in the direction that it's going. <laughs> you guys always have such great sayings. Yeah. yeah. And so if you find someone who naturally challenges the status quo, right. we don't typically hire those people, no. but we probably should. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. we need some of that we, and, and we need to value that. But yeah. that's, you know, what gets reinforced and gets repeated. So what are we doing to help people bring good ideas to us? Or are we, on the other hand, punishing people for their no. good performance? You mentioned GE, they're one of our clients. And I remember golfing with one of their top executives and they were asking me some questions. And so our role as, as advisors and consultants and speakers is to tell them the truth. And so I tell them the truth and the comments I routinely get are, hey, this is so refreshing. Why won't my people tell me this? Why won't they talk to me about this? Because they're all just being told what they want to hear. And we see the dangers that come from that. And we see it in our, in our political systems. We see it in our businesses where there needs to be an open channel, an open path where people feel safe to be able to go, hey, what about this? And you know, that's where, and you're exactly right, Michael. And so one of the challenges is if I'm a business owner and I want that, there's a good chance that people I hire, if I don't screen for that, there's a good chance that the people I hire grew up in a place where you don't tell bad news. Interesting. And hmm. so we all bring ba- we all bring baggage to every situation. Right, right. Right. And some of it's little overnight bags. Some of us have great big steamer trunks that we carry around with us. And so that baggage, when that baggage happens, you as the leader have to unpack why you're not getting that information that you want. Is there a generational aspect to this as well? In other words, I'm a baby boomer. Do we see things different? Do we view change differently than a millennial or a Gen X or Gen Y? Or We absolutely do, but we didn't. What do you mean? So when remember when baby boomers came into the workplace, right? What's changed is some compression of time. I remember managers telling me as a young consultant, young leader, you baby boomers, you've been here for two years and you already think you want a promotion. Oh, we hear that. I don't know if you were ever told that or not, but uh, yeah. 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 And so now, so what's different? 
Well, now Gen Z's come into the workplace, and I promise you, within about three days, they have a list of ideas to help you improve your business. Oh, yeah. And in a month, um, they're deciding whether they want to stick with you or not. So, debate, you know. So we, the time has just compressed. Right. Oh, okay. Uh, so the same issues. Yeah. But if you go back and look at the baby boom generation, mm -hmm. the baby boom generation championed the advancement of women in the workplace in the 70s. The baby boom generation was the driving force behind protests around Vietnam War. Right. The baby boom generation helped move forward. They weren't always driving it, but they helped move forward voting rights legislation here in the U.S. and the civil rights movement. Right. The very first Earth Day, 50-something years ago, they let baby boomers out of school to go to that. Excellent. We were going to change the world for right. them. And right. then what happened? Well, what happened is we started making money. We responsibilities. Yeah. <laughs> we had responsibilities. We got married. We right. had children. We bought, we got a mortgage. We bought a boat. <laughs> Those things happened. Got indebted. And then every generation has a version of this statement. It's, I walked six miles to, to school uphill. uphill in the snow, both ways. Barefoot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so for now, millennials, yeah. it's going to be, I had to have a device that I carried in my pocket to get information. I just didn't have it jacked into my head. Right. Yeah. So we, we all have that. So what's old is new again, and it's just recycling. That's interesting. That's a good perspective. Now you talk about within our organization. So we've got to prepare our people emotionally to be ready to counteract fear and change. You talk about providing involvement and support to those people as well. Talk for a moment about that. Is there a best practices way? There is, and it's how you choose your involvement. So that's the very first question a leader has to change is how do you want people involved? Now, very often leaders, I, I find leaders say, okay, so I just let them decide what we're going to do. No, no we're not going yeah. to do that. If you ask people, if you give them the problem and say, I want you involved in creating the solution to this problem, it's not whether we're going to change or not, it's how we're going to change. And so that level of involvement needs to be focused right. on the things that are appropriate for that individual. So if I'm dealing with my senior leadership, I've got my executive VPs and everybody off on a strategy session. Yeah, there's some about where do we need to go. Right. But if I'm dealing with frontline team members, it's this is where we're headed. Help me identify the barriers and the best way to get there. So the involvement has to be appropriate and context. what you're asking the sure. person to do. Sure. Now you talk about, and people make their changes based on emotion. They, you know, back up with the logic part of it, but it's very much an emotional issue. And we know that feelings inspire people to stick with the change, even when it's uncomfortable. You recommend that we become good storytellers, telling positive stories early and often in order within our organizations to affect the change. Give us an example of how that might be applied. So a positive story, one of my clients, interestingly enough, just last year, won the best place to work in the United States in their category. Oh, nice. Yeah. And they're very proud of the work they've done. I've worked with them for about four years now, and they're very, very proud. They've worked very, very hard. And right after COVID, one of the things that happened is the CEO said they have a number of temp agency employees, and early in, in those days... Remember, tests took four days. And so as soon as he came out, then the, they said, anyone who comes up with symptoms 
we're going to pay you for the four days that you're off automatically without you having to touch your PTO time. Mm. And if you're a temp agency people person, we're going to pay you as well. And we're going to pay that because we don't want you having to worry about those things while you're worrying about the you have COVID or not. Sure. Right. Now, that is a positive story that got told throughout the organization over and over and over again. And it's one of those stories that paid dividends for mm. months and months later right. because this was a change that needed. People were worried about what was going to happen with their leader, about what was going to happen to them and what was going to happen to their business. And here was a leader doing something that created trust, showed his credibility. And the stories around that bought all kinds of goodwill. So the next time you, that organization, that leader says, we need to pursue this change. Right. What do you think the response would be? Pa- you'd hope it'd be positive. And it will be yeah. because it's, wait a minute, he took care of us. He's not right. going to knowingly run us off the cliff. No. And and by the way, I tend to look at resistance a little different than most people. I think resistance to change, if you're a leader, is more than likely your friend, not your enemy. That's interesting. And here's the here's the notion behind it. Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah. So you, you start with the assumption. You believe that most people in your organization want to do a good job when they come to work every day. Right. You assume that. Right. So if that's the case, that means any resistance to change is either a legitimate concern or a legitimate fear in their minds. Right. As a leader, wouldn't you want to know that? Yeah, it would be important to know their perspective. And so I look at resistance as an opportunity to either, one, surface something that maybe we missed, or two, put a positive story out there to help people understand that this fear, while it might be real to you, it's highly unlikely it's going to happen. Well, it's that negative feedback that you need in order to change direction. I've been a pilot for about 40 years. And when you're flying, most of the time you're off course. So most of the time you're headed in a direction, but you're always flying off course. And the navigation system's constantly correcting, constantly correcting based on feedback, based on where you are now and where you're headed to. So to me, I view similarly as you do, that resistance is the negative feedback I need to change course or an objection to change course in my direction, right? So that that makes total sense. The last one I want to touch on with that is you recommend that leaders go first. I know you, a conversation uh, with Ross Perot, founder of EDS. I remember when Pro Systems out of Dallas there, he, I think I was reading somewhere that he once told you that leaders eat last, but they go first. What what do you mean by that? Well, how did, how did, Uh, Mr. Perot was very, very kind to me over the years. I was able to spend a lot of time with him. It goes back to his training in the Naval Academy. Right. And it's something that he carried forward. And he said, the leaders eat last because they want to make sure their troops are fed. Mm-hmm. If, if you're in battle, you want to make sure that your troops aren't stumbling around due to starvation. Right. So you want them to feel nourished and taken care of and appreciated and valued. You don't want your team to say, I'm sitting here starving and I'm looking up the hill and seeing my leader feasting in a tent. Right. So the eat last piece goes through that. Interestingly enough, though, even in today's world, I think leaders have to counter that with you might eat last, but that doesn't mean you don't eat at all. Right. It's another one of those things I learned from growing up in a rural area. 
you can't draw water from an empty well. Right. So as leaders, we have to replenish ourselves. Yeah. But we make sure our team is replenished too. But they go first means that if you're leading the change, right. it's more it's more important than ever that they see you embracing the change. Yeah, you've got to become most, a pro- product of the strategy. Sure. Right. And if you ask most people in organizations, should things change around here? They go, yes, everything should change and they should go first. <laughs> right. Great change leaders change who lead change go, wait a minute, I should go first. If this is something I'm asking people to do, I should go first. It's one of the things that Mr. Perot talked about a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great advice. I mean, people look at change and I've come to the conclusion, it's not that people don't mind change. Is that they don't like being changed. They want some element of control in there. And some of the things you do, again, in your writings, in your books, are you give two or three that I think are great ideas, and we can kind of finish up our, our conversation today on that. But number one, individuals and organizations can be more intentional and aware. And, and you liken the example you use in your writing, and I'm sure it's been controversial, and I don't think it's too soon, but you liken it to the virus or the COVID-19, the pandemic. Ideas within organizations spread like a virus, good, bad, or indifferent, but we can be aware of ourselves. And then there's things we can do to inoculate ourselves or prepare ourselves so we can be intentional and aware of remedies or problems or potential upsets. And then where can we go? Then I know you talk about using all the tools at your disposal and then find help and get help when you need it. And and I think that's really key. It is interesting to note when I wrote the article about great article. Culture is like a virus. And there are always ideas that are trying to get into your business. Right. And it's the culture that keeps them out. When those negative ideas are coming in from wherever. It's the power of your culture that serves as the T cell or the whatever cell it is that keeps them out. And I think that's really important. But even then, sometimes you need help. Right. You need help to see what's going on. I mean, I just finished a culture audit with a client last week. And when I finished the audit and gave them the feedback, one of the responses was, there's nothing really here that we can disagree with because we sort of knew it. We knew it already, which then goes to the question, why did you keep doing it? <laughs> yeah. And it comes back to exactly the things that you talk about, Michael, yeah. that it, things are working. Yeah. Well, it's like you do things until you get finally fed up with it. And then you go, hey, I'm going to change this. And we all have blind spots as individuals and organizations. We all have a blind spot. And that's why bringing it outside a 30,000 foot perspective is useful and hiring folks like yourself to come in and take a look at the reality. Because I know you can see it and get a snapshot view in a few minutes of working with an organization. You soon find out where the trouble areas are. So Randy, I always like to ask this of our guests. All of us have unique abilities. All of us have superpowers power of some sort, sometimes more than one. What would you say your superpower is? I think I have a superpower. It's the ability to understand, take macro information and understand it at a micro level and distill it down to what's the real issue. The essence that, that's of it. probably the thing that I do best for my clients. Oh, that's, that's huge. It saves a lot of time. What would you say your kryptonite is, your Achilles heel, the, the thing that like for me, it's detail, you know, and I talk about this. It's, I hire people who are amazing with detail. I get, I see the bigger picture, but I've got people to help me with the detail. What, what's your kryptonite? I hate to lose more than I love to win. 
<laughs> well, that's good. And, and yeah. because that's of good. that, I found myself that sometimes I, I want to prove myself right because I hate to lose. Right. And I have, there, there are times when I need to step back and go, wait a minute, whether you lose or not doesn't matter. But I have, it's part of my competitive right. nature. I've had it since I was a kid, but I hate to lose. Probably I, I enjoy winning, but I probably hate to lose more than I enjoy winning. Excellent. Well, it's a good way to end it. Well, Hey, this has really been a trip. I know we, I could be a pleasure. It's fun. Two, two, two days on this subject matter. And based <laughs> on what we've talked about and people are going through change, I think the bottom line is there is no more new normal. There is only the new next. And so it's been a treat to have you on board. So thanks, Randy. Thanks for sharing your time with us. My pleasure. Look forward to the next week. time. You got it. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Bess Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.